This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's podcast episode 309, and this is the third and final panel discussion recorded at our Brewers Retreat a few weeks ago. And while this panel focuses on West Coast IPA and was recorded at Russian Rivers Windsor, California Brewery, it doesn't include Vinny Chalurzo. He was off giving half of the group a personal brewery tour at the same time that we did this panel discussion. It does include some real heavyweights in the world of IPA brewing, um, like Matt Brindleton of Firestone Walker, Sean Lawson of Lawson's Finest, and a recent Russell Scherer Award winner, Ben Edmonds of Breakside Brewing. All three have appeared in the podcast before, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to have all three pick each other's brains about IPA. And if you listen to episode 300 of the podcast, you know that Ben definitely has some great questions. All three breweries have been stretching out in the IPA realm over the past couple of years, exploring new ideas, ingredients, and techniques to make engaging hop forward beers. And we spent some time exploring how each of these breweries find space within the West Coast IPA genre to brew multiple beers with varying approaches, unlike um, Firestone Walker's launch of the Hopnosis brand using cold IPA brewing techniques. Uh, as with other panels we've shared, you all listening out there won't get to taste the beers we poured to go along with the discussion. But if you'd like to try to follow along at home, try seeking out some Firestone Walker No Vacancy. Uh, and that's their Firestone Walker Invitational collaboration beer they did with uh, Alvarado Street, along with some Breakside West Coast Best Coast and Lawson's iconic Double Sunshine. As with uh, earlier panels, there are some questions out there. Um, you know, from folks in the audience. I know Ken Grossman was uh, vocal in this one too. I, if uh, they're inaudible in the audio, I'll try to repeat them so you understand what people are asking in there. And uh, we will go forward in that kind of way. Um, it's too good to not uh, share all of this. We're going to jump into the conversation in a second. But first, for years, GD Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built, offering 24 7 service and support. GD builds with non proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. GD's in house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over 30 years. They offer free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, today's podcast is sponsored by BSG. When planning your next brewing journey, consider traveling domestically with your malt choice. As distributors of quality domestic malts like RAR and Gamberness, BSG gives you the freedom to explore a world of flavors, but at local prices. So you can cut costs, but not quality. Start exploring at bsgcraftbrewing.com. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. The flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through the word-of-mouth recommendation of another brewer. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Now let's jump into the discussion on Brewing West Coast IPA. Um, maybe we'll start off with you, Ben. We'll just kind of have a broader discussion about, uh, you know, how you define West Coast IPA, what you think about when you think about IPA, what your goals are when brewing it, and then, you know, maybe a little bit of how that has evolved over the last decade of Breakside, um, you know, and how you have uh, developed this IPA and where it's going now. For sure, yeah. Um, 
as far as like when when Breakside started, you know, I think that we IPA was already West Coast IPA was already kind of the dominant trend in uh, in the Northwest. I mean, in the West Coast for sure. You know, it was a no brainer to have that as a flagship beer uh, from day one. So when when we first started brewing at Breakside, I had come from a small brewery that actually didn't do an IPA. I was, uh, we were doing mainly Saison and farmhouse style beers. So my IPA background was kind of informed more by what I had just tasted in the marketplace or at GABF and things like that. And, you know, uh, so I was trying to triangulate a little bit between what I saw as kind of these uh, marketplace examples that were really world-class beers, whether those be Matt's beers or Vinny's beers, Ken's beers that I was familiar with. And then what the kind of Northwest palette was looking for, just a little bit different. And, you know, a little bit at the time, I would say those beers were in the Northwest a little bit more pine forward, a little bit more, uh, probably a little bit darker in color, a little bit more caramel malt influence in those beers at the time than what you were seeing in kind of the uh, California vein. Um, And so, of course, I think as we have evolved uh, as a brewery and as IPA has changed, like we have embraced kind of a more... uh, pan-regional approach to brewing these beers, right? And so the beers have gotten lighter, they've gotten drier, the BUs have dropped. There's definitely some lessons to be taken away from East Coast IPA, Hazy IPA that have come kind of uh, to flow back into how we make our beers. But I would still say, you know, like fundamentally, these are relatively well-attenuated bitter beers. And, you know, for us, that bitterness has come down. But to the average consumer, I always think that, like, if if internally we say this beer is a little bit soft, it probably is actually hitting the sweet spot for our actual consumer um, as far as bitterness goes. So, yeah, that's kind of just a broad overview, I'd say. Sure. Matt, from your perspective, uh, you know, talk about how these things have changed. You all have been rolling out new IPA brands in the West Coast space while also maintaining a beautiful classic IPA in that same kind of space. Uh, you know, talk about how some of that innovation and development has happened and where you're finding new space in this broad family of West Coast IPA. Yeah, so I mean, to talk origin story a little bit, you know, Ken's in the room here. So the, the beer that I had a beat on when I was first designing IPA was Celebration Ale, you know, and, and it was always like how... How can we capture a little bit of that magic in our in our initial IPAs? And then, you know, you've heard the story a bunch of times, but Firestone Walker waited 10 years um, to launch our first official IPA, Union Jack. So by that time, you know, we had had the opportunity, um, you know, like Ben said, to to watch how it had evolved here on the West Coast. So, yeah, Vinny was a big inspiration. Um, I mean, there were a number of really great IPAs, so it was actually pretty easy. Again, this whole triangulating and picking the things that we liked and talking to brewers about the hops that were working really well for them. And at that time, we're talking 2006, the new hops on the scene were Amarillo, Simcoe, and Citra had just come out. I mean, that was the hot rod. And so we had to play with these new hops, and that, that made it pretty pretty straightforward. I always say that IPA is in our wheelhouse, so anytime we're asked to you know, generate a new IPA recipe, it's kind of, you know, it's a lot of fun. Um, and it's, it, for us, it's really focusing on new hop cultivars and how to integrate them into the beers. And you mentioned the, the East Coast kind of juicy, hazy IPA having a really profound influence on how we're making West Coast now because we're using some of those hops um, for a little different end. But 
you know, we've, we've been able to kind of elevate that tropical character in these beers. And just like everybody, I mean, you know, you're looking at this beer right now, it's like West Coast IPA went from being a somewhat amber beer with obviously a, a, a specialty malt element uh, that was pretty profound in its flavor profile to something that's, you know, really pils- Pilsner malt driven, oftentimes adjuncted to even accentuate the dryness and the focus of those beers. And as a result, we've lowered, of course, the bitterness and, you know, the hops just explode off of that canvas. So it's really fun. I, in my head, I think of it's almost Pilsner beer. You know, it's a stronger Pilsner beer, but it's almost like a Pilsner beer base with a lot of American hop punch. How about you, Sean? I'll start <clears throat> with a confession. I'm a hophead. <laughs> so that's how I got into brewing IPAs. Um, it's kind of funny for me to sit on a panel talking about West Coast IPA. Um, as you know, I'm in Vermont. Um, so about as almost as far east and north as you can get. Um, and so the IPAs for me, as a, I started as a home brewer for many years and um, certainly gravitated towards uh, West Coast style, um, drier, snappier, more bitter IPAs. And, and from the beginning, I really like the lighter color profile, not a lot of uh, color malts, not a lot of caramunic or caramel, but um, I use a, a little bit of those in our flagship IPAs. Um, it's funny because I, I, I don't know if we're bipolar or have a, can, we're, not, we're not clear on our identity, uh, but I've nev- we've never classified our IPAs. And so um, Sip of Sunshine, which is our flagship, uh, comes in at 8%. It's a pretty similar color to this, but it's been written about as one of the early um, forerunners in the New England or Juicy Hazy style. But it looks pretty darn clear these days compared to what Hazy is defined as or New England style. So I would say, well, I never considered Sip of Sunshine a New England style IPA, but it is an IPA brewed in New England. And so um, I, I, the this West, is why we drafted you for this panel yeah. and not the one after this. Yeah, I, like, I don't know the first thing about hazy IPAs, except you can't see through them. So, um, but I could describe them. And, and ironically, um, we having Having been cited as one of the early New England style IPAs, uh, we just launched a, you know, one that we've branded as hazy, a hazy race, right around 5%, um, real soft on the palate, low bitterness. Uh, but we tried to steer clear of the sort of chewy vegetal character that you get a lot of, out of a lot of the hazies out there that are maybe not as well put together. Um, for me, uh, always approached, uh, IPAs is how much aroma and flavor can I pack into the beer while still making it balanced? Um, and like you guys, the same inspirational beer, Sierra Nevada, um, the beers that Vinny makes here, um, and some of the other smaller West Coast breweries that were that were doing IPAs inspired me. Um, sort of what I would call our West Coastiest of IPAs uh, is uh, celebrates the dank and the pine, and that's our Chinookard. Um, Chinook, Columbus, Centennial, um, but it's a Chinook forward beer. Um, it's I wouldn't describe it as catty, but some people do. Um, I certainly don't want cat piss in my beer, but it's definitely, <laughs> it's dank, um, and it has a lot of cannabis-like qualities to it too, but it's, it's super snappy. It's got a real sharp bite to it, but it uses just a little bit more color malts to to make it all balance. At the end of the day, that's the key um, as I approach putting together an IPA is balancing out the, the um, 
the residual sweetness that you get out of the beer with the level of uh, bitterness. So, cool, cool. So everyone has a glass of beer, right? This is uh, this is one of Ben's beers. This first beer is uh, West Coast Best Coast. Is that it, right? West Coast Best Coast. West Coast yeah. Best Coast. Figured that would be the right thing to start this panel off with. So, Ben, this is a really light beer, very, very light, and uh, very fruit forward in its flavor. Uh, you know, definitely uh, has some of that kind of little bits of that Pacific Northwest dankness yeah. in there, just to you know to give it some structure. But talk talk to all of us about what your thinking was in designing this and how you went about designing this uh, particular beer, which is so so light. Also, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, this is yeah. So we this West Coast Best Coast is a about 7.2, 7.3% beer uh, basically goes, and I have, you know, I have to, we have lots of beers in our portfolio, so I have to have my cheat sheet here, you know. Uh, but basically it runs from about 15.5 Play-Doh down to 2.5 Play-Doh, um, and I think has been discussed on the podcast. I'm also an adherent to this belief that most, regardless of ABV, like all of our hot forward beers finish in this 2.2 to 2.7 range. That's kind of the sweet spot, and you know, when if it's too high, then we notice it. And if it's too dry, I think it, it just cuts the hop flavor um, short and the beer's a little bit rough and bitter. Uh, so, yeah, 2.5 is kind of a nice target for this beer. Uh, it's one that we've made for about three years. Uh, it is a mix of uh, Great Western Two Row and their Pure Idaho, which is a Pilsner malt out of their Pocatello facility. Um, very light. You know, I think it's 1.4, 1.5. Uh, Lovemon malt or SRM malt, Lovemon malt. Um, and... Then there's a small amount of Vienna in here as well, just to kind of, uh, I, I like the use of Vienna and Munich and some uh, character malts in IPAs to this day. Uh, obviously it doesn't impart a tremendous amount of color, but what I think it does oftentimes will kind of push those beers directionally. The hop presentation goes from a little bit more green and underripe toward a little bit more ripe kind of overripe fruit, um, which is something we seek in those beers. Uh, a little bit of dextrose in there to kind of, uh, get fermentation, you know, really uh, would it tur turbocharge it a little bit. Uh, and then, yeah, mosaic CO2 extract late in the kettle. And then after that, it's kind of uh, the modern uh, trinity, I guess, of citra mosaic strata. And then um, that's through the late kettle and whirlpool, as well as then a citra uh, addition right at cast out. And then dry hopped with those same hops plus a charge of Nelson. That's dry hopped over two different um, additions and yeah, that's kind of the basics of the beer. I mean, it's really, uh, I think for us, this is a pretty good example of where most of our IPAs are these days, which is we tend to favor things that are more in the 7% vein, a little bit, uh, lighter in color and have, yeah, a big charge, a big kind of like a double dry hop to get that aroma to really pop in that second one. You talked about using, uh, extract. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about using advanced hop products and how you found, you can best use them. I mean, you know, obviously there's there's cost, there's performance, there's yield, there's also intensity. There are a lot of different motivations for using those, and there are different ways the brewers are, are using them. How have you found in using some of these advanced hot products that you're getting either the best impact, the most intensity, or, you know, finding other functional benefits from them? Yeah, I'd say that for us, the two key pieces, we're usually using them kind of as a late kettle addition around 10 minutes before end of boil. It's not a huge amount of BUs for us, usually in the, like, I'd say 10 to 20 BU range, uh, those size charges. But one is, I just find the bitterness from these to be very, very clean, right? I think it's a much just kind of like, there's not a lot of uh, textural or kind of auxiliary bitterness coming from the use of extracts, uh, CO2 extract in particular. Um, and I really like that. And second, I actually think that the um, BU stability on it is a little bit better as well. So we like, we don't see as much of a drop in our 
from our work BU to our finished beer BU as we do with uh, an all T90 uh, kettle. So yeah, those are kind of the main pieces. I think there's probably some additional bits about fan if we want to go down that route and talk about <laughs> kind of like impact to st- longer term stability and freshness. But for now, I would just say that for me, the use of it is there's a yield benefit as well, but mainly is that I just like the cleanliness, the bitterness on it. I want to pick Matt's brain on the same subject of advanced hop products while we're uh, while we're talking because you're a, a hop scientist of sorts. In a, in a former life. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back in a second with more of the panel, but first, take your brewing to the next level with AccuBrew's revolutionary fermentation monitoring system, now predicting specific gravity. With AccuBrew, you'll have precise control over the fermentation process and ensure consistent, high-quality results. Their cloud-based app and compact sensor work together to monitor specific gravity, fermentation activity, clarity, and temperature. AccuBrew is CIP-ready and designed to stay out of your way. Their set-it-and-forget-it solution streamlines systems and processes, confirms consistency, and helps detect problems before they ruin a batch. Join the AccuBrew community today and experience 24-7 peace of mind. Visit AccuBrew.io to learn more. Also, brewing is currently one of the most innovative, adaptive, and fast-paced industries in the world. With consumer demand shifting to the latest and greatest trend, it can be difficult for production teams to keep up with requirements. The ProFill series of rotary can fillers from ProBrew are accelerating plant production everywhere. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And did you know your water can change the flavor profile of your beer? Water is the number one ingredient after all, and uswatersystems.com knows just how to treat it. uswatersystems.com has been at the forefront of the craft brewing industry and created American-made water treatment systems with brewers in mind. Whether you're a hobbyist or a pro, head on over to uswatersystems.com to learn more because great beer starts here. Now, back to the panel. <laughs> how, how have you been, you know, finding using advanced hot products, uh, extracts, flowable, uh, you know, and then, of course, concentrated pellets, you know, cryo, Lupamax, whatnot. Um, where have you found, you know, that the, the sweet spot lies for you? Are there, is it variety specific? Are there some that you like in different formats other than others? Is there a timing, you know, drive and where and when you're using that uh, is helping make some of those decisions about how you use them? I, I might be a little bit old school on the CO2 extract side of things because I think we always would use it. We would deploy it as our first bittering charge. Initial charge, yeah. yeah. And, and not think about using it late, typically until late, but just to start with CO2 extract. So we've always had it in our hop closet and it's typically been deployed into the really high IBU beers. And early on when Union Jack, we were trying to obtain like a real 75 IBU finished analytical. We had to use it to get there or we would just jam the kettle up with too much vegetative matter. And then in other lighter styles, we tend to use it for the same reason, a nice, clean, uh, reliable bitterness. And then we can feather some other aroma hops in later. So real traditional use of CO2 extract. And I would say in the early days, we leaned heavily on Magnum because that was somewhat yeah, famous or well-known amongst German brewers for clean bitterness. And, and we were finding the same, same result. And then more recently, we kind of have a program in our brewery. If we have overages, um, you know, 
if we have older hops that are that we haven't gotten through, we'll actually have those extracted and then we'll use those as our so we kind of have a bit of a mix of hops in our current CO2 extract that we use in the brewery. And then more recently, and what what this beer demonstrates a little bit is some of our more recent tinkering around with the flowable products. Um, uh, Incognito in particular here, this beer has uh, Mosaic Incognito. And so Sam at the Propagator is getting to experiment a lot more with what you discussed in your previous podcast about using it even on the cold side and, and, and doing some of the thing that North Park is doing. But um, in this beer, it's used as, uh, you know, as, as the directions would tell you to use it in the Whirlpool. <laughs> and in that case, it's a little more like what you were talking about. You get this fairly reliable, it's pre-isomerized, so you get a pretty reliable bitterness uh, from, from its use. And then you get this you know, full hop aroma character um, that, that carries through. And I've, I've done some collaborations in some other breweries. We, we did a collaboration with um, Beechwood where we used kind of an obnoxious amount of incognito in the Whirlpool. And my observation, I, I was a little shocked because when we dumped it in on that system, it just created this oil slick on the Whirlpool top. And then, in, you know, my head automatically goes to, where's that all gonna go? Are we gonna get that in the fermenter? Is it just gonna stick to the sides while all the vessels? And I start worrying and I get a little frantic about consistency there. Whereas on our brewery, uh, we have a hop dosing vessel and I found that product really suits itself well to that because, um, and I'm not sure if any probably doesn't have it on this system, I don't recall. But anyway, we, we actually pour the, the, the hop product into a vessel and then recirculate through that vessel into the kettle, and there's no no oil slick. It all goes into solution, and we seem to get really good utilization with that particular um, application. So, not to take up too much airtime. Oh no, no, sure, this. Sean. Do you have any use uh, advanced hot products? For pretty them? pretty limited use okay. in our brewery. Um, the extracts, uh, same way that right. uh, Matt traditionally uses them. We use them more at the front end of uh, higher higher BU beer, and then. Um, we have been using more of the concentrated hot product, the uh, the cryo, the, the cryo pellet, yeah, yeah, or Lupo Max, and and typically utilize those uh, in the whirlpool or in dry hopping as well. So um, the the big benefit there is just cutting down on the amount of vegetative material, um, better yield, and I think a cleaner bitterness that we get out of it. And you know, if we have time, I'd be curious to hear from the panel too about like timing uh and uh approach process wise on dry hopping um because that's evolved a lot over the years uh as For well sure. yep i want to talk about you know coming up with hot blends and your creative process around that as well as that and but i also don't want to dominate all the the questions if you guys have any questions just throw a hand up and uh We'll get them. And I know Dick's in the back there. I'm sure he can come up with some good questions for you, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the beer that's coming out now is No Vacancy. Uh, you know, um, Matt, you were talking about uh, using some new and fun hops in that one. Let's, uh, let's use that as an entree to discuss creative process around building hop blends. Yeah, and so this one I can, whether you like it or not, I can totally just blame J.C. Hill at Alvarado Street because this was a collaboration with Alvarado Street. And... We've kind of gotten this cool rhythm with our um, collabs where we really ask the, the brewery that we're working with to give us the recipe that we'll then play with later. So this is really a riff on Mai Tai more than anything, more than um, it, it's brewed much more like Mai Tai than a typical Firestone IPA. So it had, uh, it's pretty much a mosaic beer almost all the way through. 
Uh, I think there was a little bit of CO2 extract for the initial bittering charge, but then everything after that was mosaic. And we used all of the forms of mosaic. So we used uh, T90 concentrated pellets and incognito um, in this beer. And um, yeah, bitterness is, I think the target was between 45 and 50. So low by IPA standards, but still a snappy bitterness. Um, and we used a combination of, of cryo uh, and T90 in the kettle to get there. Uh, but then it had this big incognito um, charge in the whirlpool. So we got a, an amazing yield as a result because there just wasn't a lot of hot matter um, on the hot side. I mean, still IPA, so there's a fair amount in those middle charges, but because there was a CO2 extract in the front end and the incognito um, in the back end, it was a really good yield. Low color, again, it's almost all base malt um, and just a touch of wheat for foam and for, yeah, what all the nice things wheat does, but it's such a low charge. I don't know that has a massive impact on the flavor. And then we did a, a mid-firm. It's a really early... I almost say almost like a, I think it was 12 hours or something, 16 hours into the fermentation. Um, it was a relatively aggressive, um, you know, I think it was at least a pound of cryo mosaic that went in and was in that beer for the whole fermentation. Um, and then, you know, we, we do do little baby dumps out the bottom of the tank or pop burps. What do we call those? I can't remember. There's, there's some proper. Shaves, right? Oh, shaves. Shave, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. I got to get with the program. The cone, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we don't use the term dump. Shave, shave, no. sorry, sorry. So we shaved off the bottom during the fermentation uh, and then do a proper shave before the final dry hop. <laughs> nice clean shave. Yeah. Apparently I don't, yeah. So, um, and that was with uh, T90 mosaic in the finish. So it kind of has a little bit of everything in there and I think expresses mosaic really nicely. Yeah. Matt, were these all um, selected lots of mosaic? Are you blending, like, is it all, like, is all the T90 one lot of mosaic? Are you guys combining multiple lots of mosaic. Yeah, what's cool in our brewery is both our, our T90 and our cryo were our selected hops. Yeah. Um, and the incognito wasn't, however, that, that, that was whatever what was stock. Yeah. yeah. Out of curiosity, like why, uh, out, is it simply just for efficiency in the brew house that you're using all of these different formats? Well, or I think do you find that they express in different kinds of ways? That's probably a better question for JC, who was, you know, the one that was dictating these charges. Okay. But I'll t I can walk you through our logic a little bit on this beer was that the cryo mid firm. And that seems to work really well for us because there's less vegetative material that's being churned up in this fermentation. Sometimes when we've done those at large charges mid firm with T90s, they get a little gritty and pellety, I call it, you know, a little too much of the vegetative character. So it seems to work well in that application. Taking a step back, the incognito. Um, it's still a downstream product. So to me, having worked in a hop lab, it still smells like hop extract to me. Like it's, you know, it's been manhandled a little bit, uh, but it gives a really clean hop expression. Um, and it's, it's distinct. So, you know, I think when you were talking to the folks at North Park, uh, that's kind of become the house character, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there is, a, there is a distinctive note there. Uh, but then there's also something about just 90, and you've heard this from other brewers, Never do, I've never done an all cryo beer, so I can't really speak to it, but we've always blended some T90s in when we're using cryo to get some of that whole, whole hop expression. Let's also follow up on this and we can now use this to talk about Sean's subject of dry hopping because uh, early mid fermentation dry hopping in a West Coast IPA seems a little bit counterintuitive, especially if you're using, you know, 
typical West Coast yeast. Um, what do you gain from doing that versus a uh, you know post fermentation, you know, dry hopping after terminal? I don't know. I, I think there's this this kind of like idea of trying to pack as much hop character into the beer as you possibly can. And for us anyway, with, with mid-firm cryo dry hops, we tend to get this really saturated hop expression. Like it's just, hmm. you know, sewn into the beer. Um, and, and I'm sure through that fermentation, you've scrubbed off some of the, right. the myrcene and some of the real light oils. So you get away from some of that character. And um, yeah, that's the, my best way of expressing that, I guess. Because if it's still fermenting, you're still pushing CO2 you're out You're scrubbing of the a lot of hot oil off. The There's no racks. doubt about it. Yeah. yeah light, but maybe it's the bad traction. stuff. That's what you're thinking? Well, that's, that's you know. Well, the less desirable yeah, for sure. just specific Possibly. beer. I mean, you know, beers that have just this massive captured mercine character yeah. can be a little abrasive as well. Yeah. Sure. What's your dry hop process look like, Sean? I'll approach it pretty traditionally uh, for American uh, IPA brewers. So typically most of our beers, we we tend to let it fully ferment, try to get as much yeast dropped out of the beer before we start any dry hopping. And, and that'll do one or, or two charges. And uh, once the beer is kind of cleaned up, cooled off a little bit. Um, and that's evolved somewhat. Some of our newer beers, um, we've gotten into hopping, dry hopping earlier in the process, doing multiple uh, dry hops during the fermentation. And yeah, I find it definitely with those, um, the biotransformations that happen, you just get a completely different sort of expression of the hop character uh, when you add it during fermentation. Um, I think you also, you lose something uh, adding it in the, during the fermentation too. So I'm a, I'm still a pretty big fan of cleaning up the beer and adding it uh, later, but we've, you know, we've evolved to the customer's palate too, because a lot of people really like that the sort of the, the softness that you get uh, when you add it with all the yeast up in suspension and it's uh, still fermenting. Sure. How about you, Ben? How has the uh, dry hopping been evolving for you all in West Coast IPA? I mean, to be honest, our, our method has been pretty consistent mm. over the years. And uh, you know, there's a number of beers we do that are single charge dry hops kind of at day, you know, day five, day six. We've done cast out hops or hop dip, hop dipping, you know, uh, if that's the term that people are still using. Uh, in a number of beers over the years, usually ones that we don't have to harvest yeast from. Um, and then, of course, double dry hop charges on bigger beers. I think what we've actually, if we've evolved anything, it's only to do more dry hops on regular strength IPAs or even, you know, uh, now kind of even some of our session IPAs or pale ales will we'll do two dry hops. And a lot of that's varietal specific. I think that one of the things... Um, for us and why we choose to do, say, one dry hop or two or the timing of things is a little bit about trying to navigate the rough edges of some hops. Um, Galaxy is a good example of this. We're like, we've just found that if we can get our Galaxy the, the shortest contact time possible into a, uh, into a beer, we can get the flavor out of it in you know, 48 hours. We avoid a lot of the kind of woody... Uh, I always describe it as, we have one brewer who describes it, it tastes like black ants. I guess he ate like a black ants as a kid. Uh, so if that maybe is a resonant, resonates for some people. Huh. But uh, like this kind of very woody um, type flavor that uh, is a little harsh and undesirable with that hop in particular. And I think actually a number of New Zealand hops we tend to favor doing a little bit later just to try and kind of get a lot of fruit and not a lot of additional attributes from them. Um, so yeah, a lot of the time... Uh, what we're looking for with that second dry hop will often just be kind of top note 
punch at the end. It'll be a very quick contact, you know, 48 hours. We leave the tank open, so, you know, into a, uh, we're not capping at that point, so if there is any residual hop creep that's happening, we get through it relatively quickly. We had, typically we're adding ALDC at the time of that second dry hop as well. Um, and that's helped uh, at least keep any diastole spikes down. We found that this is also happening on a relatively well attenuated beer at that point. So we're not seeing a lot of change in the gravity after that second dry hop, if only maybe 0.1 degree Play-Doh. Um, but really, yeah, I view that second addition as kind of your, your top note, your punch, that last bit to get some of those uh, delicate flavors through. And you know, hopefully, to Matt's point, we've layered in enough other hop flavor from the kettle through the whirlpool through an earlier fermentation dry hop to have a base that we're really just adding on top of. And we're not relying on that last addition to be to carry the weight of the entire beer. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I would add now that you mention it that if if anything that mid firm ferment that mid firm hop addition, you're you're getting some of that enzyme that's responsible for hop creep in early, mm. and those fermentations seem to be much more consistent. There's a much less, if any, of the the creep out at the end. And then I totally agree with you on the top note, especially with the southern hemisphere. We found that for sure with with hopnosis. Um, we're spending all this money on these New Zealand hops, and we use them as very special top note for the last dry hop, you know, and, and it's a real short contact time as well. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit on that creative side. What are those hops? Can I add one other thing oh, about sure. the dry hopping? Just sorry, because yeah, yeah. I, I know this has come up in a few podcasts. So we don't sell count anymore uh, on day five, but we found like our sweet spot on this uh, is like 30 million cells in suspension. Huh. So like, you know, we've harvested at this point. Uh, we're a Chico brewery, so uh, thank you, Ken. Um, and uh, we, uh, yeah, so we, we're harvesting and then dry hopping the same day or the next day. And it's usually right around that, like, uh, I guess it'd be about 120 hours and like 30 million cells in suspension. And we found that that's like, we just get a really consistent profile from from that. I don't know why we chose that well, yeah, number. Why is there was not. The it was more because, just like we liked the results yeah. from that. So, yeah. Are you guys? I think didn't uh, Vinny ask you that? Yeah, and I'm gonna have a hard time remembering the exact numbers, but I think we have a little more flocculent yeast, yeah. um, and so our number tends to be a little bit lower than that, and not as consistent as I maybe would like to see. In other words whether or not we can really get a consistent cell count at that point from our sampling valves where they're located in the tank, which is pretty low on a pretty large format tank just above the cone. But I think it's yeah maybe closer to the 20 million cell range. We definitely want some yeast and a little bit of yeast activity just for oxygen control. I think that was always more of my, my, my thinking. And I also was thinking in terms of this potential bio-transformation, although I didn't at the time necessarily understand the, the mechanism for sure. I just liked the character of the hops when there's some yeast present um, and maybe just a little bit, half a degree Play-Doh fermentation left to go. We'll have to talk to Scott, my uh, director of brewing. We've never looked at cell counts uh, in terms of where, where we're at in the process with dry hopping. Um, and I'd also, you know, I just, I just add that quantities are really important too. And so we've played around quite a bit on our pilot system and even some of the production brews, just little, little tweaks at a time because you do get a pretty rapidly diminishing return. And when you're, when you're brewing in volume, like whether you add another quarter or half a pound of hops per barrel is a pretty significant cost impact on the finished beer. So 
Um, you know, if you're if, if you're a home brewer, or a really small brewery, you, there's a, quite a bit more latitude you have in adding three, four, five, six, seven. You just keep adding the numbers, pounds per barrel. Um, but we tend to stay pretty pretty low on the range from what I've heard from some of the smaller breweries uh, that we've done collaborations with. Um, generally, in that like one to two pounds per barrel, two would be would be pretty darn high for us uh, for a dry hopping. So civilized. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just didn't find any, we got any better results going uh, higher than that, at least to my palate, to the type of beers that we were looking to produce. I, I agree yeah. with that to, yeah. some, to some degree, Sean, which is that I think that we moved, it wasn't until we regularly started doing two dry hops and doing dual stage dry hopping that I really felt like those higher poundages were worth it. And I think I've come around to think that actually when you're doing multiple charges, you do get more, more is more. Yeah. I mean, there's probably some upper limit to it, but we had kind of, we went high with our dry hops for a while, then we came back down. And then as we honestly, for some reasons that had less to do with trying to up aroma, but more trying to reduce bitterness and uh, just improve yield, we moved hops out of the kettle and out of the whirlpool into the dry hop and uh, found that the aroma started going up again with this two-stage piece. So yeah, I think it's an interesting question of like, where, where, do those, where do you hit those saturation points? Are there other, sure. yeah, are there other variables that you also adjusted, whether it's time and temperature um, along with that two-stage process? We, we have always dry hopped at like 68, 67 to 68 degrees. And actually, if the in the winter time when our tanks dropped in the brewery with the ambient temps, if it's like sixty four, like that means that we're going to see prolonged hop creep. So I'm very much a warm dry hop guy. Yeah, yeah. We tend to cool off our beers a little bit. Um, that first dry hop we'll do at fermentation temperature. So yeah, sixty eight, seventy degrees, and then uh, we typically cool it off to fifty five to get more of the yeast to drop out, um, especially when we're doing. Uh, multi-stage dry hopping and those I'd agree completely with Ben where we've had the best results with higher hop rates is where you're adding it um, in multiple stages at different times during the process. Sure, sure. More from the panel in a minute but first no matter what you are canning Twin Monkeys Beverage Systems has the solution. With a versatile lineup of quality canning and packaging equipment made in the USA, their troop is ready to customize a setup for your craft business. Need on-site training or help with installation? You got it. Visit twinmonkeys.net today to learn just how easy it is to get your craft into cans. Also, everybody knows that yeast plays one of the most important roles in brewing, no matter what style and recipe you choose. It influences flavor, aroma, acidity, brightness, and mouthfeel all at the same time. And bring a lager is no exception. Discover a whole soft lager range by Fermentis, covering from traditional to modern style lagers. Soft Lager S189 for the elegant lagers with floral notes. Soft Lager S23 for fruity and hoppy ones. And Soft Lager W3470 for your neutral beers. Available in 500 grams, 100 grams, and 11.5 gram formats. Want to know more about Soft Lager yeasts? Visit www fermentis.com and abs commercial has been a full service brewery outfitter for over 10 years they're proud to offer brew houses tanks keg washers and small parts to brewers across the country as well as equipment for distilling cider making wine making and more they know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you 
whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Now, back to the panel. I want to come back to something you said about top notes, and I'm, I'm curious about, as you're thinking about building a blend of hops with you know through a beer, you know, creating this experience, setting that base for that flavor, as you talked about, but then like, you know, hitting a top note kind of highlights, uh, you know, how do you think about and design those hop blends? Are there certain hops that you use to build that kind of, you know, big round middle flavor and which, which hops do you start leaning on to, to add those like bright highlights? That's for all of you all. I think it depends, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about the New Zealand and kind of Southern Hemisphere influence on like top notes. And I think that's one that generally we lean on for a late edition. But it's not necessarily just for the top notes. It's more to avoid some of the grassy and woody attributes that can come from those hops if you let them sit too long. Um, I think it really just depends year to year on our lots. You know, like right now, like we had a, we have a mosaic cryo lot that's incredibly dank right now that I probably would not use for a top note just because it's too much, right? Even in a small amount, it's like that's going to be something that we'll use in Whirlpool editions. We'll use it in kind of, uh, you know, day five dry hops, but not to push kind of end aromatics. Uh, but like, you know, the year before we had a much more mango forward lot of mosaic cryo. So that would have been one that we probably were using more in top note applications. So I think it just depends. I mean, Citra is one that I immediately think of as always being great for a last late burst. But, you know, with a lot of these fruit forward hops, I think you see variability lot to lot that can push things more base note or more treble, you know, like high low. And I think you have to know your raw materials. I would echo that 100%. It really depends. And, you know, in the early days, it was always this baseline of Cascade Centennial. And then we would just work off of that. So Union Jack's a great example of that. The the brew house is predominantly Cascade Centennial, um, paying homage to Celebration Ale <laughs> on the Centennial side, I think. And, um, and then we would layer in some of our more expressive hops in the second dry hop. And more recently, I mean, it, it just completely depends on... We have so many hops now in the closet. Um, I feel like Eldorado plays really well as a baseline hop. Um, again, I think Mosaic as well, and I, I, I do notice that there can be some late pick dank Mosaic that doesn't express well, um, that I would also agree works better on the hot side. But um, And then the, the New Zealand hops, it, well, in the early days, they were so expensive and so rare that I could only afford to kind of be a little salt and pepper at the end. Um, and now that we have our hands on larger quantities of them, I just, I always work in a blend. So it's, they're never going to be a predominant part of the blend unless I'm really trying to make like that beer we had last night at the pub, Vinny's New Zealand um, R&D beer. Oh man, beautiful expression. And I'd love to see what that recipe looked like, but um, yeah. Yeah. The New Zealand hops are one of the, one of the more interesting, um, varietals to approach and um we've got a beer out like one of our limited releases that's just coming out right now that's all that's a blend of all uh southern hemisphere so galaxy from australia pacific jade and nelson um from new zealand and um it just has a it just has a really interesting way of putting all those uh hot flavor and aromas together one of the i don't know do you guys ever get this on the aromas of really uh, Southern Hemisphere, forward beers, dirty sock. I'm like, I get on a lot of those beers, I get like, I 
the aroma is like dirty sock, but it doesn't taste that way, fortunately. Um, but well, I, 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 I yeah. always say sexy BO. That's yeah. my. Yeah. That's, 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 that might be a better line, Ben. Sexy B.O. like dead to her B.O.? No, no, no. no. <laughs> There's like a patchouli influence yeah, okay. there. That, yeah. I'll often refer to it as sweaty or locker room or something like that, which, you know, it's, that's actually, it sounds kind of gross, but uh, yeah. yeah. But the approach um, that we've used is really trial and error more yeah. than anything else in terms of putting together which, you know, which hops are in the base and which ones are your, really your finishing notes by playing around with different combinations and layering the flavors together. We got a question from Ken Grossman. Yeah, a couple of comments, uh, somebody uh, briefly touched on uh, uh, oxidation concerns with um, uh, dry hopping post-fermentation. Um, we'll go back to the celebration now. So we always dry hop that whole compost. And the only way you could not get that was to put it in during mid-fermentation. Uh, so our protocol uh, was always uh, start brewing and open matter initially, and then transfer on to the hops in uh, the first uh, vessel with at least one plate of extract to make sure that we can do a good job of scrubbing up the so celebration was always dry hops during a little bit active for you know, controlling oxidation. Yeah. Doing it so much earlier than everybody else, like they do with everything, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's how we approach those late additions where the fermentation is really pretty much finished. I mean, there's still plenty of active yeast in there. Um, but once we cool it off, we put all of our hop products, uh, whether it's T90 pellets or cryo, in an external vessel, we purge that really thoroughly with CO2, um, and then we flow the, the beer through through that vessel and back into the tank and do and do a gentle recirculation for a little while to get it all blended together. Do you have any other uh, tricks and you know for reducing uh, potential oxygen in grass when dry hopping? N nothing, nothing no. that's groundbreaking. No. Sure, sure. Yeah, we're we're using a, a hop cannon. So we have the opportunity to purge uh, that pellet material out. But I'm still a big fan of, of getting the hops in earlier, um, you know, for that oxygen control. So I'd like to see some yeast activity when there's some dry hopping going on, yeah. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you're, any of you are taking the efforts of the pH control before dry hopping, uh, adjusting the supply Questions, pH control. On the cold side? Yeah, at Firestone, we haven't been practicing that, but of course we see the same thing everyone else does with this, depend, you know, depending on how much uh, we're dry hopping, and sometimes it can be variety specific, this increase in pH after dry hopping. And sometimes in that kind of danger zone above four or five that we really don't want to be at, but I haven't gone to the point of um, correcting that back down below, yeah, four or five. Yeah, we're in the same boat, I, and I actually, um, I actually think there, there's, I guess, this camp that suggests that like beers as they get a little bit higher pH, whether you know in this four six four seven range, uh, with heavy dry hops or drink flabbier, or there's concerns about diacetyl reduction. I actually find from a mouthfeel mouthfeel point of view that if other things are in check and balanced, I prefer beers with a slightly higher finishing pH. Like the four five beers to me, or four four, can be a little bit like. Uh, rougher in terms of bitterness when they're dry hopped that high. So I actually think that like a four, six beer, you know, food safety questions kind of set aside. I think that like, I, I, I 
push back against the notion that uh, higher pH leads to inevitably a flabbier finishing beer. Um, but yeah, we don't, we also just uh, have not really seen our beers creep up that high. Uh, and I think actually another piece of this too, and uh, is maybe with the use of additional cryo, we're seeing a little bit less uh, mm. pH change and also lower finishing fan in the beers. So I think there's maybe some, um, some stability bits from that that help. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, uh, you know, free, free amino nitrogen and the impact on longevity. What do you do to, I mean, because you all are all making beer that goes into package that has to, you know, get to customers in good shape. Um, you can't guarantee that it's always going to be cold stored at every, you know, as much as you might want that. Um, you know, what, what techniques do you use to make sure that that hop character um, doesn't just taste great on day one, but also tastes great on day 60? Oxygen control, oxygen control, oxygen control. I mean, I mean that's what we've always focused on, and I still feel like we make pretty delicate beers. Um, you know, it, what's really interesting, having done a little bit more work recently with Boulevard Brewing Company, is uh, scavenger oxygen scavenging yeast using bottle conditioning or at least getting some active yeast in finished package to help control oxygen uh, and longevity of the of the package goods. So I think there's a few old school brewers tricks um, that can help you. I haven't focused as much on this fan issue, so I can't really speak to that. Um, but I think that, you know, in our brewery, it's like everything, uh, you know, attention to detail from the front end to the back end. So if we're making really clean wort with, you know, grain that's coming in at the specs that we're asking for, um, we got our yeast in really good shape and, you know, we're pitching and really paying attention to good fermentation and then oxygen control all the way to the finish line has always been, you know, the, the way we make beer the best. And we taste it in long-term sensory studies when we really performed on the front end, the beer is tasting really good uh, longer uh, on the back end. What Matt said. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't looked at fan in our but, brewery for you know, finished beer. We have um, Ken in the room, so I, I, I would love to ask. Yeah. And what Charlie Bamforth said is time and temperature. That's the other uh, thing that we look at. So we place a really strong emphasis on cold supply chain um, through the market, which is very difficult to achieve. But from day one, that was something that um, we weren't going to compromise on. And... Um, you know, so the fresher you consume your beer and if you keep it cold the whole way, um, that's going to do a lot to protect uh, all the effort and the ingredients that went in on the front end. What are you doing on fan, Ben? We've, so we've spent the last couple of years looking at fan, uh, starting with work fan and then uh, fan at terminal uh, gravity, package fan, and then the delta fan after dry hop. I think I got into this mainly, I was probably listening to an MBAA podcast where it might have been Joe Hertrich or someone was talking about like, uh, fan uptake was a, a indicator that AB used for many number of years as a kind of key indicator for yeast health. Um, and so I kind of ran with that idea and we started talking about that internally as like, you know, beyond viability, what are we really looking at as far as assays go? And so uh, fan uptake has been something we really have try and use the predictive, um, well, we try and predict what we think that fan uptake is going to look like. And that's kind of the first key to a healthy fermentation for us beyond viability. Um, and, and cell count, of course, and other, all the other pieces that go into it. So it's part of the puzzle. Uh, but we've seen, you see this huge delta, right? Or this increase in fan and finished beer with dry hopping. And so, um, 
at first we were uncertain is, you know, is it about total value? Like is the total number at the end of the day that you want to be looking at, is it something, does that make a difference? Or is it about the delta between, uh, you know, end of fermentation and the time you're in package with the dry hop addition? Because one thing that's not happening during hop creep, there's actually, we're not seeing any diminishment of that uh, added fan. So the yeast isn't taking it back up. It's just sitting in that finished beer. We just see actually it increases over the course of several days. So if we dry hop on day six, the fan will be increased on day six, day seven, and kind of peaks out and plateaus at that point. Um, there's a great ASBC paper about this that was out, I think, last year or two that kind of validated a lot of these uh, numbers that we were seeing from a, a third party. Anyhow, uh, where we have gone or where our current hypothesis is, is that it's not a total value. Like this beer that has, you know, a four and a half pound or three and a half pound per barrel dry hop is pretty high fan number in package, but it actually holds on pretty well because if we get that initial number down. So we're really focused on kind of uh, having as not zero residual fan, that's not possible, but like a low residual fan number at the time we dry hop. And then we're less concerned about what that delta looks like. That said, using cryo does seem to also make that delta smaller. So um, it may just be that there's less, there's less fan in those uh, advanced or kind of further pellet, uh, concentrated pellets. Do we probably have time for one more question if anyone has one? Can I say a little bit about the last, uh, sure, the last beer? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't <laughs> talked sunshine. about Double Sunshine. So <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. a lot of stories about this beer that have nothing to do with the ingredients <laughs> of the process. So if you wanna hear some of those, uh, find me at the social hour. Um, but it kind of built our brewery from the beginning. It was a beer that, um, you know, one day I'm, I was a one-man show for years, and I was delivering beer down at the Warren store, the only retail outlet, and people were lined up outside the store. Uh, it's a different era of craft beer uh, back then. And I'm, like, asking the guys at the front, I'm like, where are you guys from? They're like, we're from Chicago. We drove here overnight. I'm like, you guys are crazy. Wow. So... Um, the, this one has a lot of different malts. I had to pull it up uh, to see. And my approach here was really about building layers of flavor. So I started with a North American pale malt, some, uh, some European pills to lighten it up, uh, the base malt. So use a little bit of uh, acidulated to get the pH just right um, without any other additives um, to the brew with our water profile. And then just a real tight, light touch of uh, the lightest color carapils, um, both for flavor and dextrin and which variety you use. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give up that one because it's my favorite carapils, but um, you can experiment around with, with different ones and some of them add a lot more color than others. So I was going for the lightest color and the highest dextrin um, addition, some special aromatic Vienna, and then just a little light touch of English uh, caramel too. And then um, really Citra is the star of the party. When I started out um, in 2008, it was both the advent of these really fun um, fruit forward hops and also a hop crisis. So as a small brewer new to the scene, it was very hard to get hops. And thankfully um, I, I wisened up and got a contract right away, even as a one barrel brewery. Um, to make sure I had enough Citra, especially a couple of years later as we were planning to scale up uh, the beer and Sip of Sunshine was born. Um, and so do a double dry hop or two stage on this, on this approach, one mid fermentation and one after it's been cooled and cleaned up a little bit. But you'll notice it's got more of a, a little bit more a hint of an orange or amber. And I mean, this is a beer that 
used to be considered kind of a little hazy, but it's it's pretty it's pretty clear these days. So, so and then back yeah. to the question. Oh, no, so sure, yeah, sure. yep. I just wanted to ask: when you dry hop, do you just lift up sitting in a blanket, or do you find that if you agitate somehow you get a bit more out of it? And how do you agitate? We uh, are generally with our like 120 barrel tanks, our dry hops are quiescent. Like we don't do any additional rousing. Um, on some of the small fermenters at the pubs, we do. I just my theory there is that the liquid column, you know, we see enough contact as it percolates down through the liquid column that we're getting the aromatics that we want. Uh, this is enough contact time on the smaller tanks. I am concerned that we don't get that. We've never we've we've done some sensory stuff on it, um, work on it, but have never really confirmed it. But um, I do feel like when we recirculate and we've tried that, there's too many negative. We may get more intensity of aroma, but I found that we get too many pickup, too much pickup of undesirable attributes from hops as well. But that's just personal preference. You have any? will argue about that with you, yeah. and you can see his techniques on yeah. the on the tanks as yeah. you guys take this tour. That's great. Yeah, it's very beer specific for us, and we've changed our minds on this a few times over. But um, these mid fermentation hops is kind of perfect because you have natural convection mixing with the fermentation, so that's nice. And then the later dry hops, we we've definitely played around with doing some CO two bursts, but you know, from a consistency standpoint, you know, you're doing a little bit of scrubbing, you're doing some mixing. So I'm not sure I'm a huge fan of that, but we have done that and it, it again it kind of depends um unfortunately it, back in the day when pellet quality wasn't as good and we got these a little more case hardened pellets they would just fall to the bottom of the tank and not you know break up and then we almost were forced to do some mixing and these days i think um, most of the pellet plants are producing these really nice soft pellets in a soft pack and they tend to break up a little bit better and as a result, require less mixing and, and less, um, yeah, farting around with the beer like that, yeah. Yeah, similar approach. Um, we tend to, it depends on the size of the tanks. So the smaller tanks, pump size, seven barrel, we'll do a little bit of rousing with CO2, um, no recirculation. The bigger tanks, 80 and, um, and up, we'll do uh, a recirculation right when we add the hops, try to do it as gently and as, for as short a period of time. So like an 80 barrel tank will be less than half an hour, but like a, you know, a 600 barrel tank will be, you know, about an hour. On those really big tanks, like, is there, if you don't do any type of browsing, is there any issues with stratification where certain areas get more contact? I think the the least control that you have is over temperature stratification, and so it's really hard to control. Um, you know, when you when you dry when you recirculate, you, that homogenizes, so you get you get a more consistent temperature throughout. Um, but on a tank that that big, it's I find the smaller tanks that get better dry hop impact than those really large tanks, um, and but we have achieved a really good measure of consistency. So that's that's the key is that it's as close to the previous batch and the next one and your desired results. Cool. Well, I think that's gonna bring this to a close. We'll uh, thank you guys for joining and talking about West Coast thank IPA. Yeah, thank you.
Thanks for listening in on this panel on Brewing West Coast IPA. This is the last of our Three Brewers Retreat panels, and I hope you've enjoyed this entire series. Uh, lots of incredible information and experience at play in every one of these three panels that we've shared to you. Um, as I've said in past episodes here, well, we don't have plans for the next Brewers Retreat, but if you want to stay on top of what our plans do become and evolve into, then uh, join our email list. You can get over go over to beerandbrewing.com and then subscribe to our newsletter to stay on top of that if you're not already subscribed. And if you're not, I mean, really, why aren't you already? Um, <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. BSG gives you the freedom to explore a world of flavors, but at local prices. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. Detect problems before they ruin a batch with the AccuBrew system. ProBrew's rotary can fillers achieve precise and consistent filling volumes. USWaterSystems.com builds American-made water treatment systems with brewers in mind. Twin Monkeys offers customizable packaging solutions for every craft. Discover the soft lager range from Fermentus for all your lager needs. And ABS Commercial is your full-service brewery outfitter. Um, as always, please subscribe. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber. Let us know that this content matters to you and help us keep bringing it to you week after week after week it is your subscriptions that make this podcast possible um and that's all i've got for this week we'll be back next week we've got a great episode with justin burt of ghost town as we talk more and more about brewing awesome killer award-winning medal-winning west coast ipas until then cheers This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.